we're gonna go with the single of our new album. <laughs> presents today's episode 43 this is part two of the jay zone interview in this part we talk about jay's relationship with pablo martin the break records jay zone has made his occasional verses working with producer vanderslice interviewing drummers for the red bull music series and his thoughts on the upcoming nba season after the interview make sure you check out soundcheck at six the do rights live album as well as the links to my books on wegoingin.com and what's it been like, you know, working with Pablo and seeing your relationship with him develop over the years? It's been great, man. He's been a great friend and a great mentor and a great, you know, music partner. Like he was my man. He mastered every J-Zone album except the first one. So I've been working with him since 2000, Bottle of Whoopass. And when, you know, I found he used to work for a company called Digital Force in Manhattan that did mastering for cheap. And I just called that company up because I was getting ready to go on an Australian tour and I needed to have my, my CDs turned around quickly and I didn't have a lot of money and I needed the album mastered fast and cheap. I remember somebody gave me the mastering plant that company flow used and it was like a thousand bucks. And I was like, I can't do that shit. You know what I'm saying? I just went to Yellow Pages. If I never did that, there'd be no joy. Like, I think about that sometimes. Like, if I had just called somebody else to master the album, anybody else, we might not be talking right now. Like, that shit is deep. You know what I'm saying? Like, I called him at that time. He provided a good service for cheap. I was like, hey, I like that guy. And every year, I just kept going to him. And he became my mastering guy. And then, you know, and I had no idea back then that he was a musician. I thought he was just an, a master, an engineer. I didn't know he played instruments. I didn't know he played an instrument until 2012. You know, when he gave me a CD of one of his groups. I was like, oh, this is cool. Or maybe 2010, somewhere in there. And I was like, oh, he plays instruments, cool. You know, and it was like we, you know, the, the do right started off a Facebook post. You know, I was like, look, I need some people to jam with. I want to see where I'm at with these drums. And he's the only one who responded. So 
that's how we started, man. Like very unlikely circumstances, very divergent musical paths. You know, he's from Argentina. He was in the Tom Tom Club. He worked primarily in mastering engineer, and he was in rock and Latin and different things like that. And then I'm a New York guy and hip hop, and I didn't pick up an instrument until later. Like all this is shit that's totally by luck. Like not luck, but just freak. Freak of nature shit, man. And um, the fact that we get along, we have disagreements about music like any other duo or any other band, but we get along well. We're both very easygoing. He's Taurus, I'm Pisces, so that's water and earth. I mean, that's pretty cool. (laughs) You know, and I also think the fact that he's older and he's been around the block and he's been in bands. He sees how things have gone. You know what I'm saying? Like he's 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 we're able to enjoy the success that we do have because we've both been down and out. We've had we've been up and we've been down. So we appreciate every single band camp order that comes in. You know what I'm saying? Whereas like if I were working with like an established hip hop artist, they'd be like, "Well, how come we're not on?" rock the bells and how come we're not on doing this and how come you know they selling this much how many views does this have yeah like we just make music and for us to have that in common to just be like yo let's just make some music and get it out like it shows that we're not as different as we seem like we've both been through ups and downs in this business and we've been around for a long ass time and you can only get to this spot by having those experiences and just being older you know, like if if I had this level of success as Jay Zone the rapper, I would have quit after my first album. Like if I was splitting show, show money six ways, you know, selling the amount of records we sell. But I have a different perspective this time around. I enjoy it. I'm not like, oh fuck, man, everything sucks. Like, like I'm like, nah, like it's cool. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, Spotify, Spotify, the payout sucks. Okay, records don't sell like they used to. Okay, show money is tough to come by. It's hard to get gigs. But this time around, like, all that experience, all that shit I went through that I put in the book, all that fucking bullshit from the the 2000s and after the book, like, I I think that I've I've been through that, and now I can appreciate everything. Like, I, I appreciate things a lot more. Back then, it was about okay, this album did well. How do we get the next one bigger? Right? Tim's don't pay taxes. What did it sell? 11,000. Next one got to be 15. You know, or, ooh, you know, I want to get a review. I want to get interviewed in this magazine. And I got to get in Scratch Magazine, man, like whatever the cost. And I went and got in there. You know, they did a feature on me for doing music for adult films. And I'm like, that's not why I want, that's not how I wanted to get in Scratch. But I took it because I want, you know, I was desperate. You, oh, you're slept on. You're, you're underrated. I used to take that shit personal. Like, man, people better give me my props. Like, now nah, I don't give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's great to have people appreciate it. And I love, I love that people appreciate shit. And I want to be appreciated. I want my art recognized. But you got, I, I learned, we both learned through all these experiences that you're, motivation for making music has to be greater than whatever the payout is. Like sometimes the motivation has to come from the music itself. And that's the mistake I made with my rap career. 
you know, that I won't make this time. I could have just enjoyed my career for what it was instead of getting disappointed when it didn't go further than Pimps don't pay taxes or whatever, you know. So I think, but he's had the same experiences just in a different genre. So like we're both, you know, grateful for what we have and we're, we're enjoying the ride now, you know, and that, and we're both experiencing a rebirth and we're both not taking it for granted and enjoying every minute of it. And that's what makes it, that's what makes the chemistry work. That's pretty awesome. And do you find that, you know, when you, when you look at who's listening, do you think you have a lot of fans that have come over from the J zone, um, album days, or do you feel like you're also encapsulating like a bunch of, um, of new fans that, that might not even be aware of your, your hip hop status? Both. I think it's both. There's a lot of people who had no idea that I had a rap career at all. You know, a lot, a lot of people just, they discovered me through do rights or drumming or through Ben Parani or even with the rock band, Lulu Lewis, like a lot of people discovered me through different things and I had no idea that I had a rap career. Some people were fans from the beginning and that's what you call diehards. Those are the fans when you meet them in real life, you buy them a beer because anybody who like would follow me from music for two Madre through now and just, and, and to really fuck with me every step of the way. That shit is rare, man. Like, I always say this, music careers are like train routes. Like, the train starts at a certain station and it ends at another one, and people get on and off. Like, very few people get on the first stop and get off the last. Most people just get off in the middle or they get on in the middle. You know, some people never there at the beginning or the end. They're just on in the middle. People get on and off. And it's very rare you find people that are all the way through. You have some. It's just not very common. Like music is music is, is so rooted in nostalgia that the memories that your music creates for people endear you to them more than the music itself. And a perfect example would be Nas, right? Like Nas is forty something years old, wealthy, successful. He can't make another Illmatic. <laughs> How? He, he, he made that record, living with his mom, baby on the way, in the project. How am I going to get out of here and make some money? I'm a young black man in New York City. Like, the odds are stacked against me. This shit better work. Now, he's got Wingstops. He's owner of fucking Mass Appeal. He's made X amount of albums. He's all this other shit. The, act, the technical of rapping he never lost it and he's always going to be a creative person a musician but he can't rap about project bench life anymore and and the fans are fucking insane to 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 think that he should like he can't remake that shit you know what i'm saying it, it's like so and there's this there's this thing where fans where artists feel like their fans have to support every album and fans feel like their artists have to help them live their nostalgia forever and it just doesn't work that way so 
if you are a true artist, meaning that you grow and change with your experiences and your life and all your experiences and your craftsmanship all change your music as you go along, there are going to be people who don't like it because they remember you for getting drunk at, at, in college and partying to your music. And now if you're rapping about mortgages and 401ks and sending your kids off to school, they're not going to relate to that shit <laughs> because they know you as the party guy. Or even if you went back and made another record that sounds just like your hit record from back then, they're still not going to react the same way because it has nothing to do with the music. It has to do with the memories around the music. He could make another Illmatic. It would, people would still complain. And, you know, I went, you know, I went back and did Peter Pan syndrome and fish and grits. Some fans were like, yo, Zone is back. Some people were like, oh, it's good, but it just doesn't feel the same. Yeah, because Peter Pan syndrome I had been through all that bitterness. I wrote the book. I was in my mid-30s, questioning my life. I learned to play drums. All that shit came out in the music. So it's not going to sound like a kid flipping through the dollar bins, you know, chasing chicks around New York City, you know, rapping about what would happen if the government took the day off. Like, I'm 36 years old and I'm figuring out what the fuck my life is going. Yeah, the music is going to change. <laughs> and... and you know, I think that fans think artists owe them that and artists think that fans are going to be faithful all the way. It's kind of like, it's, it's totally, the, the audience and the artist relationship is, 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 is complicated because it's totally conditional and it's based on where you are in life. And I have people that didn't like me as a hip-hop artist and they love what I'm doing now. I have people that are like, Zone, what the fuck are you doing all this drum shit, this funk shit, like, get back on that J-Zone hip-hop shit we wanted. You know, I have people who are like, yo, I like both. <laughs> I still fuck with your rap shit, you know, and I enjoy the do-rights too. And then there's people who just never like me at all. So, you know, you can't lose sleep over, over any one particular thing. You obviously want everybody to like your music, but... It's deeper than just music. You're up against people's memories. You're up against nostalgia. You're up against other things bigger than your music. You know how many people just are like, yo, man, you were such a huge part of my college experience. You know, all those the, the old made billionaires and sick of being rich. Like, yo, you were a huge part of my college experience. I'm like, yo, I appreciate that. It I, makes me feel great that I was the soundtrack to this part of my life. And they're like, yo, you know, yo, are, are you still doing, you know, you should still do that. And I'm like, yeah, but there was like nine albums between then and now that you have no idea exist. So if you're asking me to go back and do that, then where does that lead to love a hooker? Five of the liquor store. That's the word. Boss Hog Barbarian. This this. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's like, they like, you know, you make 12 albums, you were the soundtrack of their life, the two of them. And they focus on those two, but you still have to go out and make a living. You still have to create as an artist. So I can't, you know, you, if, if you try to please the fans, you will destroy yourself. You have to just make music and whoever gravitates towards it, gravitates towards it. And you appreciate everyone who, who supported you every different step of the way. There's my J-Zone old made billionaires people. There's the the boss hog crowd. 
There's the J-Zone solo artist crowd. There's the J-Zone weird side project crowd, like two people who like to love a hooker and liquor store. Then there's the, the drumming and the funk crowd. Then there's people with the books and the ego trip columns and Elemental and Dante Ross and all that shit. You know, there's people who follow me for DJ. I mean, all these different things. And, you know, some of them have kept up with me. Some of them move on. And, and I'm totally okay with that. I accept that. That's part of being an artist. And that's part of the fan-artist dichotomy. And, you know, if a lot of artists can't deal with it. But it, that's just part of it, man. And I just appreciate all of it. And then, But it, none of it keeps me up at night. Like, I'm not sitting there thinking about how can I please the new cats, but then please people who like you know oh eastern conference all-star like i'm not sitting out there trying to think about how to please how to please both crowds you know what i'm saying like it's like that's impossible you, you drive yourself crazy i just make music and then it falls where it falls i might be playing fucking jazz 20 years from now who knows <laughs> i'm a musician i'm an artist like i just go where the art where the art tips me you know what I'm saying? And then I follow my passion and then I figure it out later. And, and it's not, what am I going to do? Get dropped from a label for experimenting? What are they going to do? Like, uh, you know, they're going to take my CDs out of Tower Records because they're not selling. You know, like, you get a dollar, a dollar sixty-four, you know, your whole album makes a dollar and change for streaming. You mean it would have made eight dollars if I kept true to the game? Like, there's, like, there's, no, there's nothing to lose anymore. So now I, other people disagree. I think it's a great time to be an artist. You know, it's hard to get paid. It's, it's, it's a, the floodgates are open. But at the same time, there's nobody sitting at a desk telling you, you should go back to what you did before or else we're not going to press your record. It, it, I've been in that situation before. So, you know, um, I'm I'm happy, man. I'm I'm happy with you know. I think it's a great time to make. And even when I have my ups and downs, I have everything in perspective because I've been through this shit before, and I I can take things on realistically, and never get too high and never get too low, and just enjoy it, and make music for, for whoever's feeling it, you know. That's great, and you know, I mean, I, I think I think that's you know such a valuable perspective to have and to share. You know, thinking too, you've done break records and, you know, you put those out. And I saw even No from Cunning Linguist was saying, you know, he's going to make a bunch of beats with no drums just so he can put, you know, your your drums over his beats. You know, what's it like making break records and knowing that producers are going to use it? It's great, man. It's surreal to me, man. Like, as somebody who sampled for so long to now to be sampled, I think that that's great. Like, you know, obviously like, you know, if somebody would have sampled my drum, like loop up my drums and make $6 billion, like a fucking Apple commercial or something, be nice to get some publishing and do the right thing, <laughs> you know, obviously, but you know how many people like will tag me on Instagram, like, yo, check out my new song on SoundCloud and they'll be like, yo, Jay zone. I got the drums from him. And that I like hearing my drums and other people's beats better than in my own beats. <laughs> because it's like, I know what I'm going to do with my drumming, but to hear what somebody else will do with it. 
that's dope. Like, how would, like, okay, on this particular day, I played this groove. Now, some producer in Finland took that shit and repurposed it and chopped it up and turned it into, like, half the time they sample me, I can't even tell it's me. Because the technology and, and the chops have gotten so crazy. A lot of these producers have a lot of technique and a lot of little plugins and things, and they bend and twist it and turn it into something else. And I'm like, that shit is dope. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, that shit is fucking cool, man. You know, and they give me credit, and, you know, like, you know, they tag me in the beat, and that shit is dope, man. You know, like, the, the, you know, that people are using my drums the way I would sample somebody else 20 years ago. Now they're sampling me, and that shit is cool. And, and as somebody who's in, who was making music during the worst possible time to be sampling, you know, lawsuits like i was in a real catch-22 as an artist because i i liked the sample but then it was like i couldn't afford to clear it you know i didn't have the money to clear it so it was kind of like i was walking on eggshells all the time you know and if i when i did get sued it hurt because i'm a small business i don't have a lot of money i'm not a big selling artist so if someone comes after you it's not like they sue Def Jam. Oh, I'll just pay them excellent. Def Jam has money set aside for sample clearance lawsuits. But for somebody like me, like I got, I got a, might have to live on soup for a month if I get hit up. <laughs> like that's how real it was. And towards the end, it was like people were getting sued over snare drum hits and drum loops and shit. Like never mind four bars. Like it was like drum sound. So being somebody who went through that, like I said, for for a guy making a hip hop album and you know selling five hundred CDs or pressing up five hundred seven inches, or, you know you put the shit up and you get you know, your average indie hip hop album like I was doing, I'm not gonna ask for no fucking money for that because there's really not a lot of money in it. I'd rather just get the credit. So it's like okay, somebody like me. There might be a producer out there who likes to sample, you know, and he doesn't have the money to clear the drums from that meters record, but he samples mine. He's not, it's not like he's Kanye and he's making hits and a big ton of money. You know what I'm saying? So he can't afford to clear it. So then what does he do? Use shitty drums. So it's like for me to be the, you know, to, to fill a void for, for the blue collar producer, it's great because I was a blue collar producer and I know if I was, if somebody was providing this service back then, it would have been great. I would have had way less sleepless nights <laughs> over drums. I sampled. you know, so I, and it's also, that's my last, that's my, my last remaining connection to hip hop. Like don't get it twisted. I mean, hip hop is a part of me. It's a part of my life. It's a part of my journey. It's part of who I am. I'm not a hip hop artist anymore in terms of producer and MC, but my, you know, my presence in hip hop goes on through the producers using drums, all the different hip hop cats that have been, I've been working with, Farrell Monch, Alchemist, Marco Polo, DJ Newmark, like all these people I've done drums for, Danger Mouse, people are hitting me up for shit, people sample my shit, and I'm able to keep, I'm able to keep a footprint in hip hop without going back into Jay's own rap mode. And that's pretty cool. You know, 
Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, the J Zone the rapper's not completely gone, right? I mean, we got Chevrolet off Vanderslice's best album Money Can Buy. How does Vanderslice get you um to do something? Cuz I mean, I know I know he's not the only one that asks, but you did it for him. Um what's what what what's his secret? Well, I recorded that. Here's a funny story. I've known Eric Vanderslice since the beginning. He used to email me early in my career. I'm talking about the AOL days. And he's always been on the up and up. And he's always been about the music. And we always got along. He's, he's hysterical. He's funny. You know, so like we always got along. And we never worked together, but we were always cool. We went record shopping a couple times. So it was, he got at, I was working on Fish and Grits. You know, my grandmother wasn't doing well. I, I knew Fish and Grits was going to be the, the end. But I was finishing up that album at the end of 2015. And he encountered, he came across a whole bunch of music that was product advertisements, like commercials. And he had one for like Zenith, one for like Chevrolet, one for Cadillac, like all these jingles. He, I don't know where he's, he's a master record collector. I don't know where he found this stuff. And he's like, yo, the Chevrolet one is gangster. And he played it for me. I was like, wow, that's crazy. He was like, I know you love Cadillac. <laughs> I was, and he played the Cadillac one. I was like, yo, I got to use that. And he was like, all right, if you do a verse, over the Chevrolet shit, I'll give you the Cadillac shit. So I wrote Caddy Coop on Fish and Grits and Chevrolet the same day. <laughs> he, gave me, he gave me both of them. He gave me the Chevrolet flipped into a beat. I took the Cadillac shit, made my own beat out of it, wrote those two rhymes the same day, and those are the last two raps I ever wrote. Really? Yeah. Wow. That was... That was the end of 2015. Those that was the last time I recorded a rap verse. I recorded both songs back to back the same day, and they were both Vanderslice finding these car commercials, and I got the Cadillac one. And the payment for that was I do a verse for the Chevrolet, and the Chevrolet shit was hard as fuck. I was like, man. All right, if I'm going to go out, then I'm going to go out on two verses about two great cars. Eric's, Eric's a real good dude. So I did it. <laughs> I never rapped again. That's so, amazing. Yeah. But um, you did you did plot the hosting duties on Chris Cracks. Um, thanks, Uncle Trill. Um what was yeah. it like hosting a project, especially because like hosting was such a big deal and like, you know, like the, the mid 2000, uh, you know, like the mixtapes like hosted by so-and-so like that almost mattered more than the music is like, I got so-and-so to host my project and 2018, 2019, not, you know, as big of a deal having a host. So you did it. What was it like? And, and especially doing it now. Well, the Chris Crack thing, I met Chris Crack through DJ Rude One, who's like one of my closest friends. And Rude One was a Chicago guy. 
And um, we kept saying, like, yo, this is kid Chris Crack from Chicago. He's pretty dope. You know, he's always somebody he's a big fan of yours. He wants to meet you. I was like, okay. And you know how it is. Like, rap. can't fuck about rap. It was like, this was, 20, this was 2016, like, after Fish and Grips was out. Like, at that point, I was DJ, I had a DJ residency. I was getting the do-right thing together. I was playing my Funk 45 DJ. I wasn't thinking about no rap. And then he came. He actually came by to the gig. He was in New York, and Rude was like, "Yo, Chris is coming." I gave him the address, and he came by, and he had Sick of Being Rich on his uh, his phone. He was listening to it. And he's like, "Yo, man, I'm a big fan." He just had a cool energy. I was like, "Oh, he seems like a cool kid." You know, I mean, I don't really listen to it, but I was like, "Let me go home." And, and Rick was like, "No, he's actually dope." I was like, "All right." Then I go home and put that shit in. I'm like, yo, he kind of reminds me of me. <laughs> like, it's not exactly, not the voice, but the presentation, the persona, the irreverent sense of humor. He reminded me of like a young me, and that kind of hit me in a certain way. I just saw him and I felt like a younger brother and shit. Like, I felt like he was like a younger brother. Like, I, was like, a, like, I saw myself in him. And then when I realized he was doing a lot of that, at the time, he was doing everything by himself. So I hit him up like, yo, man, I checked out your shit. That shit is dope. And then he mailed me a Uncle Trill sweatshirt. He's like, yo, I've been making these. And I'm, I'm like, damn, this dude is like DIY like me. Like he's doing all his He reminded me of me in 1999, 2000. And I was like, yo, this young brother from Chicago is doing his thing. That's dope. And he was like, yo, man, maybe I could get you on a verse or a beat. And normally when people say that shit, I'm just like, all right, yeah, cool. <laughs> it's like, I'm just not there anymore. But I was like, you know what? I was honest with him. I was like, yo, man, be straight up. I'm not rhyming anymore. My heart hasn't been in beats. But I'll do something for you, man. Like, I'll, I'll be involved somehow. And he was like, you want to, you know, maybe I can get you to host some. Or, I was, and, or no, he was like, maybe I can get you to do a skit. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, well, how about I just call you and leave a voicemail talking about how you stole all my chicks and all that shit. And I just wrote the whole script out. I wrote out like a three-minute script. <laughs> and I called his voicemail and left it, and then he chopped it up and put it throughout Uncle Trill. Like, I didn't do it piece by piece. I left him, like, a three-minute voicemail with all that shit. <laughs> like, I just wrote it in one shot and did it. And it, and it was great because I was able to – I wanted to help him. You know, I want, and I wanted to be involved. He was dope. I was like, I want to show that I co-sign, but I'm not rhyming. I'm not producing. I don't think his style of production calls for drumming. So I don't think me playing drums on it is really going to fit. But I was like, I'll do the hosting thing. And I had a blast, man. That shit was fun. <laughs> you know, and I, I think he, he's going to do some big things, man. Like, I don't listen to a lot of hip-hop, but I always listen to whatever he puts out. I, I just think he has a really dope energy, you know? Yeah, that that was fun. That, that it, it, it was cool to hear those, um, the interludes too, man. So, um, that, you know, I, th I thought that was well done, man. 
And what we can also say is in 2018, Jay Zone is technically on a song with Shady Records, Conway. Uh, oh, the drums. No, I mean, uh, you talking about Bud? You talking about Bud Alchemist? No, I'm talking about the. Um, no, but that's cool too, man. Um, I'm talking about the Chris Crack song with Conway, where you come on at the end uh, as part of the interlude. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's how... And then the Rude One album, like, we're both not on the same song, but we're... Rude One, like I said, that's my, one of my closest friends. I did a verse for him. When did I record Cop Hell? I only recorded three rap verses when I came back, like guest appearances, like when I came back with Peter Pan syndrome and, and had that little mini, that, that short comeback, <laughs> I call it. It was like a two year comeback. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I did Chevrolet. I did cop hell for Rude one. And then I did something for Hoslo that never came out. And then I did the, Oh, I did the Sam Sleazebag bag mixtape. Um, which was like a mixtape with everybody rhyming over 90s beats. It was like a double cassette or like a quadruple cassette. And they got everybody from that era to come back and do a verse, like the late 90s. And um, those are the only verses I did. Like, you know, and but all those situations, Sam the Sleazebag was my mechanic for a while. Really? Oh, my boy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's, a, he's a mechanic. He owns a... Family has an auto body shop. <laughs> so like, you see what I'm saying? Like, I, 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 the rapping thing was whatever. Like, anytime I did a verse for anyone in that little window period of time, like 2013 to 2016 or whatever that was, that was just only for friends. I wouldn't do it for money. I would turn down money. I, I had no fucking interest. But for my boys, like Vanderslice, Rick, Chris Crack, Sleazebag, Hoslow, like those are people that I'll, you know, I'll, those are people that I'll talk to via text or on the phone and shit randomly. Like it don't have to be about, you know, it don't have to be about what are we working on. Like it'll just be some random shmandom shit, you know. So it's like it, it was like, all right, I'll do you know a favor, but it's a favor I want to do, <laughs> you know, but. You know, I, I like that. I can look at my discography and see, yo, I made music with my friends, you know, and, and I did it for my friends. I wasn't taking it back in 2007, getting on MySpace, like, yo, Christmas verse, $50, a.k.a. my kid needs a PlayStation and I ain't got no money for it. <laughs> get me get me from verses before the holidays to save 47% and all that shit, you know, like it was, it was never about that. Like any beat or any verse I did at the end, it was like for friends. And then if it felt like a cash grab, I wouldn't do it. And then, you know, I eventually got, I mean, the, the last beat I did was a remix for Peyton Locke who just passed away. He was a friend of mine with Dylan and Jay live and Phil, Phil the soul man, all guys I respect and know, you know, and, I went out, you know, I, I could look at my discography and say, okay, you know, when, you know, when I, when I went a different direction, I can look back on my hip hop work that I had done and at the end. It was like, all right, everything I did was the people that I fuck with, you know, 
It wasn't like, yo, I need money, yo, I'm just taking money and I'm just doing breakfast for whoever. Because I, I don't have the, I need to have passion to do shit. I can't do shit. You know, it's not like, well, I hate to paint this room green, but you're paying me to be a painter, so I'm going to paint it green. It's like, no, nah, I don't want to paint the room green. I'm not going to paint it all. Keep the money. <laughs> like that, that's just, that's where I was. You know, so I, I think, you know, I, I went out with the right collaboration. Let's just say that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, definitely got to give you props on to give the drummer some um, interview series you did with, with Red Bull Music. And, you know, as a drummer yourself, you know, how do you think that helps you relate to other drummers, especially drummers where, like, you're not only familiar with them, but, like, you can talk technique and you can talk shop with them? It's big, man, because I'm in a unique position with that because I could speak to them as a drummer and then I could speak to them as a producer. And only Questlove, maybe Daru Jones, maybe Kareem, definitely Kareem Riggins. There's only a few drummers that can that can like sit up there and talk about rudiments and technique and what drum set did you use and what was the sticking and, you know, what kind of heads did you have? And then they could also say, well, Jay Dillon sampled you on this and he chopped it up. Listen, like very few people can say that. Those guys I just mentioned could all do that because they're drummers by trade and they're also hip hop guys. So, you know, they have a, a knowledge of beat making and DJing and sampling culture where when you have, when they have this, like if those guys were to get interviewed by, you know, most drumming podcasts or drumming magazines or blogs, like they're going to talk totally about technique. They're, or they're going to talk about the role that you played on this song. Like I'll talk about that, but then I'll say, how did you feel when you, you know, when your music, when your drums ended up in this public enemy song, you know, what did you think about what they did with it? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like guys who are just into drumming may not know that. You know what I'm saying? Like, and guys who are hip hop producers aren't going to be able to talk about, well, you, you you took this Elvin Jones triplet thing and then you 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 laid it out in a bat in a in a four four context and yada yada yada. Like that kind of language, a hip hop producer may not know. So so to be have a hip hop background and a drumming background, it gives me when I interview people, it it, it opened up a lot of shit. And those interviews are interesting. They, a lot of those guys I interviewed said they'd never been asked those questions before. You know, and they everybody I interviewed said, man, you know your shit, because I, I make sure that when I'm also a journalist, I know when people interview me, I like it when they know my shit. Like right now, you're not asking me about, so what did you and Huggy Bear think of with no consequences? <laughs> like, yo, when's the EC All-Stars? And that, like, you see what I'm doing, so you work towards that. Like, you obviously paid attention to what I'm up to. And, you know, same thing with Blueprint or, or Bedroom Beethoven's. Like, you know, I've been doing a lot of interviews, and it just seems like everybody has been very attentive. So when I interview those drummers, I make sure that I, I attack it from a lot of angles. Some of these guys played on records that, that caused a lot of social change. 
political change. Greg Gregorico from Sly and the Family Stone, he's in a band that's multiracial, men and women, at, at the late 60s when the world is changing and they're making music that's semi-controversial. We could talk for 25 minutes, 25, 30 minutes, not even about drumming, just about the, the social impact. And like what the, what being in Sly and the Family Stone at the time meant, you know, like there's other layers, and that's a history angle that has nothing to do with drumming or hip hop production. That has to do with history, like American history. You know what I'm saying? Like, so that column, like a lot of these guys lived through some turbulent times. Like, there were a lot of these guys played in places where they didn't serve black people. And they had to go eat somewhere else. They would play clubs and they couldn't get a meal there. They could. They had to use a separate restaurant. They had to carry pistols on them and shit for protection. Like, these people went through some shit. So you can talk about that. <laughs> like, so that, that column, you know, not, I don't think just anybody could have that column. Like, you have to have a scope on history. You have to have a scope on the music they played and its impact on modern music. And you have to have a scope on the actual nuts and bolts of, of the craft playing the instrument itself. So, you know, that's what my goal with that. I didn't want to do drumming interviews. I didn't want to do all history and I didn't want to do like, okay, this is how you affected hip hop. Like I wanted to talk about everything. And, um, I think I got that out of all the guys I interviewed. You know, no, I think that's that's incredible, incredible just because it, it shows that, you know, like the research piece and like I know how as an interviewer, it's always great when someone says like, that's a good question um, or I've never been asked that before um, because it's like, you know, you want to do your research and respect, you know, someone else's time by showing that you, you know, you didn't just go to Wikipedia and you know read the last interview someone did and just kind of replicate an old interview um you know is it ever a challenge though when you're interviewing somebody that you're that you're a huge fan of at the same time um or is it ever like kind of surreal when you're actually talking to someone that like you know you grew up listening to oh yeah george brown from cool in the gang that was my first interview for that entire column that was the first interview i did that was the test interview uh to see if i was going to turn this into a series and i had been trying to interview george for years and cool and i tracked him down and i was just trying to be professional but then i had all the records to be autographed in my bag and he saw it on the elevator ride up to his suite where he was staying he was like oh you got all these huh i was like yeah <laughs> it's like I couldn't, I couldn't, but I made sure to be the competent professional. And within five minutes of the interview starting, he's like, "Yo, how do you know all this stuff?" He was like, "How do you know that?" Like he asked me, "Like how did you know that?" Question, and I was like, "Because everything I could find on you or the band over the years, I read because the inspiration." He's like, "Why?" He's like, "You know more about my career than I do," and I was like, "And that." when he when that's when he really opened up because people don't act, like you said you look at other interviews that artists do and you see cool in the gang okay you know okay how did you start 
Okay, talk about celebration. <laughs> Ladies night, Joanna. Okay, you've been sampled a lot. Okay, tonight you're playing at the Bellagio Grand. How does it feel to be in this city? The end. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, and George doesn't even play drums that much anymore. He's mainly a keyboard player. So to like really sit and he's and, and those guys are jazz musicians. First before funk. So to like talk about his jazz influences, Elvin Jones, Buddy Rich, his eyes lit up because nobody barely asked him about drumming and they definitely don't ask him about jazz. So like you get in there and you start talking about all these jazz records where you know, where he learned his shit from and you talk about all of the the influences and the nuts and bolts, you know, that's where, and when he opened up, I was like, oh, then I didn't feel so bad at the end when I had him sign all the records and my Sharpie died and he had to sit there and wait for me to run the, the fucking CVS and get another Sharpie like a fool. <laughs> <laughs> but he sat there and waited for me. He didn't have to do that. I think he did it because he was like, yo, this, this guy is really knows my career. And then they, they, but then after that, there comes a respect between the interviewer and the artist. And then when the, when the cassette player stops rolling, you're still talking just about drum shit, life shit. You know, when, when bedroom Beethoven, when he interviewed me, he, he mentioned Mark Adams and Joe Dukes in the first 10 minutes. Joe Dukes was one of my favorite drummers. And Mark Adams is the bass player that made me, become a musician and they're not famous musicians but they're my favorites he only could have known that from like really paying attention to some random ass interview i did at some point years ago like the fact that he fucking dug that up i wouldn't shut up i just, I just kept going because i feel like okay he cares you feel me like you see he sees what I'm trying to do, he's asking the right questions, and then you want to talk. You know what I'm We've been talking X amount of time. We're talking about shit that's, like, pertinent to me. It's not like people asking the same old questions. You know, you got people, like, that want to talk about, you know, they're asking about, you know, stuff from 20 years ago, which is great, but it's like, you know, why would you publish an interview on something that's, like, I'm not doing, <laughs> or whatever. you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's just weird. Or, you know, like Nas recently said, I'm done talking about Omatic. I don't blame him. What the fuck else is there to say about Omatic that hasn't already been said? You I know, mean, I would have stopped talking about it years ago if I were him, you know? And it's like, that's got to be annoying. Like, okay, yeah, it, it might be it's his best work or, you know, it's his, his monument is, is one of the greatest albums of all time. I don't think anybody could live up to that kind of a hype. But then it's kind of like, you know, not everything he did was terrible. He made some great music in between. And it's like, people don't, if I were him, I'd be like, you know, nobody wants to talk about Undying Love or Rewind or, you know, nobody wants to talk about, uh, you know, any of those big random, you know, uh, Purple or Second Childhood or like all you know he, he's had stuff and it's just like they want to talk about that. <laughs> it's like you know after a while as an artist you're like it's already there. 
everything you want exists. It's, it's already out there. You, you want to be nostalgic, it's there. And you get tired of answering questions about the same, like Bernard Purdy. Everybody who interviews him asks him about the Purdy shuffle. No shit. It's what he's remembered for. But nobody asks him about scoring the music to the first black X-rated film ever, Lila. Nobody talks about that. And when I mentioned Lila, his face lit up. He's like, somebody knows that? <laughs> like, yeah, we're fans. He's like, when we went over the questions, he was like, oh, you guys did some research, huh? I was like, yeah, we're not talking about the Purdy Shuffle today. We are, but we're talking about it for five minutes. The, the remaining 55 minutes, we're going to talk about your life. You know what I'm saying? Because you've earned the right to be asked about everything you've done. And that's what makes great journalists. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of the written word, and I'm a fan of the music, and I take them both very seriously. So the, integ the journalistic integrity comes from the same place as musical integrity. I think I think that's so important and just looking at everything um, you've done I feel like you've always done it to your fullest including your opinions on Facebook and one post I really enjoyed was when you said that some of your opinions from 10 years ago haven't aged as well as you would have hoped um, you know as they pop up on the Facebook memories page so I gotta ask what what popped up that made you kind of say like maybe I shouldn't have posted this or this hasn't aged well. Everything. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of it is just like, I don't, I don't even think anything is really age bad per se. I think it's just that the, we're so numb to opinions. I even think my book has aged poorly in some ways. Because when I wrote that book or when I posted these statuses 12 years ago, not everybody, like opinions were, like you only saw the opinions of people who wrote articles. You couldn't go into Twitter and just see some random, you could follow somebody just out of a courtesy and then they retweet some totally fucking off the wall shit that has like thousands of retweets. Like why would someone say something so stupid? And it's like now the opinion has been given such weight at this point that opinion, even opinions of people who have achieved a lot don't matter. Like it's like the, the opinion is so diluted at this point. It's almost a negative. Like, okay, you're, it's noise. And I'm reading my old opinions through a modern telescope. Like I'm complaining about mumble rap or I'm complaining about people who complain about mumble rap two years later because I, I figured out in the middle that mumble rap's not for me. Who gives a shit? Who cares? Doesn't change the way I eat shit or sleep. But, you know, like, or, or, you know, my opinions on Kanye West. Who gives a fuck what I think about Kanye West? Who gives a fuck what anybody thinks? And, you know, it, it's like just the opinion. Like, like when you see those old memories, a lot of them are from 2007, eight. Where would you see people's opinion? We had MySpace then. All right. So unless you sat down and wrote a blog on MySpace, unless you started a blog, like, you know, Uncut or Two Dope Boys or 
or uh, you know, S Gaze Now Right, like you know, Byron Crawford. Like you had these blogs, but these are guys who like are writers and or musical connoisseurs with a specific lane. So there's a, there's a certain amount of credibility they have to even write. They, they garnered a following by writing and reviewing and listening to enough music to get an audience. So there's a little bit of a floodgate. There was no Twitter, you know, in 2006, seven, eight. Like when I first, when we first got on MySpace, it was like, a status, you mean I could just put my opinion up here? <laughs> and it was like, that's profound. Now, who cares? <laughs> like, you know, like, half the half the Facebook feed hates the Wu-Tang Hulu series. Half them love it. Half the people think the gang star is a disappointment. Half the people love it. Half the people think Kanye's a genius. Other half think he's an asshole. Who cares what I think? Because what I think ain't going to change your mind. So it's noise. But in 2007, opinions were just, you couldn't have these discussions unless we all got together and talked music. Now it's kind of like everybody's getting together and talking music, but now you're talking with strangers who don't know shit about music and everybody's just trying to talk louder than the other. And then it just becomes, well, how can I get the most attention? Like, like you notice when somebody does a tweet and it accidentally goes viral, you know, they say, give me a follow. Like they, they do a thread on Twitter. Like the Twitter has like, the tweet has like 20,000 likes, 50,000 retweets. And then they'll just start a thread and say, you know, uh, follow me if you like. You know, they, they try to jump on that bandwagon. Okay, I'm going to try to get some followers out of this shit. You know what I'm saying? Because they said some shit to get attention. So it's like, I don't even think it, it meant so much that my opinions aged poorly. I just think it just looks so awkward to look back at a time when I thought what I had to say about someone else's art or music in general, like, did anybody would give a fuck? <laughs> like, it's just odd. Like, who gives a fuck? You know, like, it's, it's, it's totally lost its power. And, and to see myself every day, like, talking about, I like Kanye's rants better than his music. <laughs> and then getting into it with people over that shit. Like, who cares what I think? It's, it's irrelevant. You know, like, and looking at those things, it's like, okay, yes, yeah, some of my opinions have aged poorly, but then some of them, the idea itself, the thinking that your opinion really matters, at one point, it seemed like it did matter. Now, yeah, okay, you can post your feelings on the new Gangstar, you can post your feelings on the Wu-Tang series, you can post your feelings on reality television you can push feelings on Donald Trump. <laughs> you can put whatever you want, right? But what is it really doing? You, you, somebody disagrees, you get into a fight, and then the whole day your, 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 your notifications are going off, and then you stop living your life. And it just, so I'm like, now I'm just like, I don't put my, my opinion on someone else's music is just noise at this point and it's more of, it's not so much me it's more of a sign of the times like at this point it's like 
who the fuck is anybody? It's like, okay, that's your opinion. Like, but for me personally, like I'm an, I'm a musician now, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm an artist, like in 2009, 10, I stopped making music. I was a writer. So I felt like I had to write an opinion on everything. Now I'm an artist. I'm not going to write my opinion on another artist's music because I'm a musician too. So it's kind of like, all right, you know, now that I'm doing music again full time, it's like I don't have the headspace to even give a shit. Maybe because I was a full time writer then, I felt I had to be a critic, you know. And and maybe seeing that, I'm looking at it from like a back then I was trying to be a writer. I was blogging all the time, so people looked to me for opinions on shit. Now, I mean, I do write. I always write, but I'm a musician. Like, I'm trying to fucking figure out this chord progression for this next do Rights record. Like, I don't give a fuck what people think about whatever album. <laughs> like, and nobody should care what I think. You know, make your own decision. And that's really what that was. No doubt. And I know we're still early in the season, but there's been, you know... I think a few surprises in the NBA, especially uh, how well um, you know the Heat are doing. Like you, like you mentioned, um, the Jazz look pretty strong. Surprisingly, um, Lakers seem to be having it together, and of course the Knicks, you know, suck as they usually do. So, what do you think so far about the start of the NBA season? And you know, are you surprised by anything? Miami, man, they're going to be a problem. Miami's. Miami's going to upset somebody. If, if they stay healthy and keep it going, one of those teams in the East that everybody likes, like either the Bucks, the Sixers, the Raptors, the Nets, uh, what's the other one? There's another one that people uh, I'm losing focus. But any of those, um, Boston, right? Miami's going to, like, nobody was talking about Miami, right? Miami's going to beat one of those teams. They're, they've been a welcome surprise. I personally, you know, my teams, are, I like the Jazz. And I like the, uh, I like Denver Nuggets a lot. And I like the Clippers. I, I don't know how Paul George is going to, you know, see how he works in. But that goes as planned. Those are my three teams in the West. And then in Miami, you know, in the East, I like Miami. Um... I do like I do like Boston Celtics. You know, um the Bucks are okay, you know. Um remains to be seen. You know, Philly has a lot of talent. I'm not really big Sixers fan right now, but you know, I, I do like Tobias Harris a lot. Um so we'll see. You know, and, and Dallas is also gonna be very exciting. You know, I think Dallas. I think Dallas is all. I think Dallas and Miami are going to surprise people and and be legit, man. And um, you know, but I do obviously Golden State ain't going nowhere. I, I I have I have this strange feeling that the Rockets either won't make the playoffs or they'll be a bottom seed. I know that sounds crazy, but I I do I don't have a good feeling about the Rockets. The chemistry seems off there, especially with Russ. Yeah, I mean, Russ had a couple of good games with the stats, but but then the games where he played well, like James Harden played abysmal, and I don't. I think their opportunity has passed, man. I think the Rockets' time was two years ago, and they choked. 
a few seasons in a row, that one game where they, they shot the worst shooting percentage in the history of the NBA or some crazy shit against Golden State. Like, they shot, like, 3 of 30 or some some crazy-ass number. Sorry, they shot – um, they couldn't put the ball in the ocean. And Mike D'Antoni, he has one style of play. I, I don't see it, man. It's a controversial take. I think they're going to be a seven or eight seed and get dusted off. I think they, I think they might not even make the playoffs. I think, I think the Rockets are going to choke. And if they get in, they're going to lose in the first round. I don't, I don't see the Rockets. People are talking about the, you know, Stephen A. Smith was saying the Rockets are going to be a top. I don't see it. I just don't. I just. This, this, the the West is too is too deep, man. You know, for for them, there's too many good teams in the West. All those teams like Denver and Utah, they've been beat the last few years, but now they have that experience. They know what it takes. And you got a bunch of vets on the Clippers, the Lakers. You know, obviously have AD, LeBron. And, you know, they, that that the, the talent gap between those five teams and then. Everybody else, you know, you got Phoenix played a couple of good games. You know, Minnesota played a couple of good games. I mean, anybody at any time can knock off a team like Rockets. So that, that's, to me, you know, Golden State's not even the biggest disappointment. They're just injured and shit and everybody left. I think I'm not impressed with the Rockets at all. Are you one of those fans too? Because I mean, I know a lot of people right now are celebrating, just you know how happy they are that Golden State um, is struggling. I don't think Golden State is done for good. I think this year is going to be tough with with all the injuries, but I I, I don't think they're done for real. Um, how do you feel about about the Golden State dynasty um, being in question this year? I mean, I knew it was going to come. It's like anything else. It's like a music career. You know, like you have a great run and you burn out. <laughs> like it's just, it, you got to think about it. Five straight Western Conference Finals. That means they're playing into May, June every year. Like they're playing against teams that went home in April, May. You know, some of these guys were, some of these teams didn't make the playoffs, and now they're a threat. You're talking about the same group of four, four, you know, four or five, six guys. They're beat up. They're physically beat up. There's no way they could sustain that shit. Like they all were dropping like flies, like Durant dropped. Then, like a week of the next series, Clay out. Then Sean Livingston, too old, retires. Iguodala, old, and goes to Memphis, and that's that. Now their core is stripped away. Then Curry gets hurt. Now Draymond got a minor injury. Looney was out with some other shit. Like, it, it's just, it's crazy. But it's, but it's like, look how long they've been going deep in the playoffs. They've been, they, everybody else was recuperating. Like, it was only a matter of time. I don't think they're done for good, obviously. Everything goes in cycles, but. You know the next the next three four years is going to be about these teams right here. You know, I, you know the Utahs, the Denver's, the Clippers. Those are the teams that are going to dominate. 
you know, in, in the next few years. And then, you know, everything, everything, ha- everybody will have their run except the Knicks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, RJ Barrett. Yeah, nah, Knicks ain't going nowhere, man. I do like Mark, Marcus Morris. He's a tough dude, but their their front office is so so dysfunctional. They they haven't they haven't I haven't watched the Knicks since the mid nineties, man. And I, I I have I know better than to get my hopes up, man. It's 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 not gonna happen, man. So you know. I uh, I'm not gonna become a Nets fan, but I just I let's just say I stay up late a lot watching the West Coast games. <laughs> so 